Sans Pants Radio, Australia's least coherent podcast network. Welcome to groovy, shagadelic <laughs> London. It's the swinging 60s. London is popping off. Put down the kettle, pick up some acid or even a marijuana and go absolutely <laughs> crazy. This is my happening, baby. And it freaks me out. <laughs> You're listening to Total Reboot, the grooviest, most shagadelic podcast on the internet that's all about movies. I'm Cameron James. And sitting opposite me on a plush, furry chaise lounge is Alexi Toliopoulos. Oh, behave, baby. <laughs> we are here talking about reboots and remakes and ripoffs, and we are talking about an original movie that had so much influence on many mm. classic films. Mm. We are doing a little mini series called Travoltal Reboot. We're talking about reboots and remakes of John Travolta's career. One of the great men, one of the great chins, mm, and he's God. been involved in some great remakes, reboots, and ripoffs, and some ones that may not be as great. That is the facts that we can state here today. Uh, we, of course, he stars in one of my favorite movies of all time, called uh, Swordfish. Called Swordfish. No, he's in. Well, he's actually in a lot of my favorite movies of all time, but one in particular is Brian De Palma's Blow. Out, mm. and that of course is part of this great legacy of movies that are deeply and heavily inspired by the movie we're going to be talking about today, which is one of the most grooviest shagadelic classics of all time, mm. Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up. And you can tell that one is derivative of the other mm-hmm. because the titles are quite similar. They're similar. It's a riff. It's a riff. You go, okay, one's called Blow Up. The next one's called Blow Out. Mm. Okay, what's going on here? Are they related? Is one a sequel? Is one a squeakle? I don't know. (laughs) And especially because usually it's the last name that's the same. But these guys have the same first name. (laughs) That's true. And I'm very excited to dip my toe back into the groovy, shagadelic Mm. waters of the 1960s. Because, uh, I mean, we've spent a bit of time there. On our yes. sister podcast, Mike Check. And Mike Check is a sister, and she's a naughty little sister. She's a sister from another mister. Yes. Well, say misters, it's us. <laughs> so it is a biological sister, but she is naughty. Oh, good Lord. But she you know is. What? Things were different back then in the 60s. You could do things, you could be different, you Heck, could be crazy. Things were different a couple of years ago. We probably said some things that are quite naughty on that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> probably so. And there's a few naughty things in this movie, Blow Up. Mm. I had never seen it. Me too. Until recently, I fought, saw it for the first time this year as well. And I would say, for both of us, it's, pro- like, for us especially, yeah. probably our biggest, biggest blind spot. Well, it, I mean, it's 
It's the blueprint for the first act of Austin Powers. Yes. Austin Powers, if you've never seen it, is a wonderful film directed by Auto J. Roach and yes. starring Auto Austin Powers as himself. <laughs> as himself. It's an autobiographical picture or an autobiographical picture, if you will. And the character of Austin Powers is a photographer in swinging London mm-hmm. in the 1960s who is high profile, he's energetic, he gets involved with the models, he yes, is famously in a sexual fashion. Famously a very physical person on set. Yes. He's snapping photos and yelling orders at them. This went over my head for many years mm. until it has been brought to my attention in the last few years that that is Basically, a direct parody of this movie, Blow Up. Mm, absolutely. It's a parody of the aura, the vibe, and I would say aesthetic of this movie. Jay Roach, as we have said and declared, not just in the last 10 minutes, but over several years on another podcast, is a motherfucking auteur, dude. <laughs> He's a freaking auteur. And you can tell a Jay Roach movie from a single frame. Yes. Because it usually has Austin Powers in that usually frame. Usually it either has Austin Powers or Greg Gaylord Fokker. Yes, you can tell it from a Gaylord <laughs> or you can tell it from an Austin. A shag lord, if you will. You know, if there's a cat that has nipples that could possibly be milked, You're you watch a J-Roach. J-Roach joint. <laughs> Roll up the joint and stick in the roach. We're ha- watching a fucking J-Roach vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but there's there's so much more to this movie than just the Austin Powers mm. um, inspiration. This is um, I don't know if I agree. No, no. This movie is iconic mm. in a way that is intimidating to me. Yes, I don't know if it's intimidating to you, but I feel like you know this movie came out in '66. It's been called a classic for over 50 years now. Mm-hmm. What can you say about it that hasn't already been said? What can you say about it in 2020 from two guys who mainly know it as an Austin Powers touchstone? Yes, and a blowout touchstone. And a blowout and touchstone. And a conversation touchstone. I'm a bit intimidated about how we're going to talk about it. I'm not as even sure I. how to tackle it, to be honest. As am I, but I think we have to tackle it through our shagadelic pimped out shades, our lenses. Okay. And I think that I'm, I'm right there with you because I felt this immense pressure to watch this movie for a long time. Mm. I even thought years ago we'd end up doing it on mic check because we're like, we got to go through the influences. And I had... Put it off because of that that pressure or that nervousness about it. And mm. kind of like knowing that's like a not just big influence on Austin Powers, but big influence on Blowout, one of my favorite movies of all time. And big influence on Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, which is another movie that has meant a lot to me in my journey of becoming a big old movie brain. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to say that. No, I could tell halfway through the word. <laughs> Your whole body seized up like you were somehow both embarrassed and proud of what you were about yes, to say. As is my usual aura, I guess. <laughs> but I, I, so I think I put this off because Michelangelo Antonioni is an immense director as far as like his influence on cinema goes, particularly with this movie. And I had only seen one movie of his before which was 
the, his final English language movie. Only made three, which was this. Then he made Zabriskie Point, mm-hmm. and then he made The Passenger with uh, Maria Schneider and Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Weird that I remembered her name first. <laughs> <laughs> and I I had seen that because that was like also like this film known as an iconic classic and the thing that's always known about that is like it has this incredible one take one sh- like one long take shot mm. at the end of the film where the camera travels through this window or whatever and I remember seeing that movie when I was like 17 or 18 years old and it is this slow existentialist film I can't even really remember what it's about, but it's stars Jack Nicholson. And I was like, oh, it's going to be new Hollywood. It's going to be exciting. It's Or if it's going to be slow, it's going to be kind of like five easy pieces or mm. something like that, where it's like, you know, you can tap into it because it's about really this human feelings and human relationships. And it is about that. But I found it terribly slow and I couldn't get into it. I think ever since then, Antonioni has been like this this behemoth that I've been nervous to tackle. I've seen La Ventura since then and I love that movie, but, and it kind of has helped me understand this one a little bit more with what he's trying to do because he is like this, with that film kind of revolutionized visuals when it comes to cinema and visual storytelling in that it was in this way, like it, it was telling the story visually of this person that's gone missing and like this film was kind of like not exactly a mystery, but there's stuff around it, like mm-hmm. stuff around it in that realm where it doesn't have you can't really apply genre to the films to, as, to help understand them. And yeah. it he's been described as like a modernist filmmaker in the first modernist filmmaker, whereas film is like a modernist form of art because it's always a little bit abstract. It's got a narrative to it, but it's, film's always a little bit abstract when it comes to like getting meanings from it but you watch his films and you're like oh i get it he is like an actual modernist filmmaker the way picasso is a modernist painter the way frank lloyd wright is a modernist architect Mm. and there are these elements that like there's plots but they're not important and then these other things these vibes and auras that take you to different areas of thought and the way that this film is structured does that and i was like oh i kind of get it so i put this movie off for a long time and I watched it very recently because I last year saw... I saw Herbie Hancock in concert before I saw this movie, who is the composer mm. of this film. Mm. So I think after that, I was like, oh, I got to finally watch it. I, I'd avoided it, I think, maybe for similar reasons. The, the specter of it looms large. And I think, you know, I could sum up my the way that I feel about this movie very quickly. This is a movie that I would have adored, frothed, bought the Mm. poster for if I first saw it when I was 19. Yeah. It hits all those Mm. marks that I think young Cameron would have found, like, incredibly romantic. This feels like a very Cameron movie to me. Yeah. Aesthetically, for sure. Aesthetically, even now still, I'm very drawn to it Mm. because, you know, it's... It's sixties. It's London. It's mod. The Yardbirds are in it. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page is in this fucking movie. Yes. Herbie Hancock does the score, like you said, and it is a an, a slow existentialist film about. I mean, who knows what it's about? But but the vibe of it is that it's it's 
it's about discontentment and dis- disenfranchisement. Mm. These are all things that hit a lot of my marks. Like I could tick them all off and go, yeah, that's me in film yes. school. I would, I would definitely have loved this if Absolutely. I saw this in, at uni. I'm surprised they don't come to your house now and see a blow-up poster. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy if, that I don't have one. Uh, if you told me you had one, I would believe it <laughs> yeah, right now. Yeah, it's very much in something that I would have used when I was 19 mm. as a... Way to pick up a, chicks. A way to say, look, <laughs> this is my taste. Yeah. It's my blow-up poster and I have a Yardbirds fucking vinyl or some shit. <laughs> On loop, yeah. Yeah, but like now I think, you know what? It's it, it actually, I did a lot of self-reflection watching this movie, which I guess it, you're supposed to do when you're watching Antonioni movie. Antonioni, if you're up there listening, you've done your job, but baby. But my self-reflection was about how much I've changed over the last... How long have we been podcasting for? Five years. Okay. Over the last five years, when we first started The Blank Slate, I came to that saying, I don't like horror movies. Mm-hmm. I find genre movies boring. Um, Link Ladder was my guy. Mm. I was all about those slow storytelling, like Gus Van Sant. Now, over the course of that five years... I'm sorry to tell you, everybody. I'm a fucking genre guy. <laughs> you love genre. I. It's been so fun seeing that change because I remember me very specifically slowly introducing you to genre. Like, check out this one. Check out this. Check out this horror movie. And kind of like always giving a little presentation. Like, going like, now this is why you shall enjoy this movie. <laughs> and it's so interesting to kind of see that, like, I reckon five years ago, if we watched this, you would have yourself blown up. Probably. You would have like really, this would have been your thing. You'd be like finding the meaning in it. I know. I would have been telling everyone, oh, you've got to watch Blow Up, dude. It's amazing. But now. And everyone will be like, I know. know. It's known as a I'm a fucking blowout guy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I've I've really evolved over the last five years from blow up guy to blow out guy. Mm. I like the genre stuff more. I like the, I like excitement Mm. more. (laughs) And I like story. And I think this movie doesn't have story. It has. Or I would story say telling. it has story, but it doesn't have plot. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. I just think it's it's been interesting how much I've um, cha- grown up or whatever. Mm. I, and maybe that's a regression. I don't even know. I like, don't think it's a regression. Something's happened. I just, the way that we've been talking about this has made me kind of have like a bit of a eureka moment in how our tastes have developed together and how they've developed over the last five years because... I th- and especially with this podcast in particular mm. and mic check as well to an extent is that the thing that we love most when it comes to discussing film and having a- an analysis of film in a way is that we get off on the- seeing the lineage of storytelling mm. and the lineage of artists and how they influence each other. This one, we're talking about how we love the fucking lineage of this film. The next in line. the sure. w- Everything that, that has been inspired by this. You watch this movie and you are tackling a true original film. Mm-hmm. When, you watch the, when you watch Blow Up, you can't go, oh, it's Fellini here. You can yeah. see a bit of Fellini yeah. here. And there's a little bit of um, freaking... I don't know some English cunny, some <laughs> David Lean or something. Mm. You can you you don't see those influences. This no. is an expressionistic representation of a time and a place, sure. and a type of person that was popular and famous back then. A type of artist, and I think that it is as well a first time in English language film by an Italian mm. filmmaker. They're giving like they it's their style coming to 
a new language for the first time. Yeah. So even watching this now, this is quite new. You know, this feels new. It also doesn't quite feel like... Like the, the Austin Powers parody of this is more 60s. Mm. This is this is clearly the 60s, but it's a much drabber version mm. than I thought it was going to be. Let's you know what I mean? dive into it because i absolutely desperate to talk about that. I just want to say very quickly that even though you can't see the influences on it, you can see its influence immediately mm. on everything else. Immediately. I mean, I okay, go, watch this movie... And you get 25 minutes into it and you go, oh, well, this is everything that Gus Van Sant did was taken from this. Everything that Linklater did in those mm-hmm. one day movies is taken from this. The way that we think of the 1960s is taken from this, mm. especially England in the 1960s. Let's get into it. Blow up is the most critically acclaimed film of the year and winner of two Academy Award nominations, including Best Director. Antonioni's camera never flinches at love without meaning, murder without guilt, at the dazzle and the madness of London today. You are an eyewitness to what's happening in a world where the beautiful and the bizarre take on new forms and hold new fascinations. Blow Up. Blow Up, 1966, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. Here's the tagline. It's an exciting one. Michelangelo Antonioni's first British film. Mm, I mean, that's technically true. Technically, it's true. And I guess it could be a major selling point for some people. (laughs) A successful mod photographer in London whose world is bounded by fashion, pop music, marijuana, and easy sex feels his life is boring and despairing. But in the course of a single day, he accidentally captures on film the commission of a murder. The fact that he has photographed the murder does not occur to him until he studies and then blows up his negatives, uncovering details, blowing up smaller and smaller elements, and finally putting together the puzzle. Yeah, that is what it's about. But like it's, I mean, like all existentialist literature and plays and film and Mm. shit like that, that's the background. And the rest of it is long sequences of him just doing his job, him Mm. running errands, him walking through the park and stuff like that. Uh, you know what? The the genre plot doesn't kick in till 45 minutes into the movie. And then it immediately tapers off. Very quickly tapers off. And then it comes back and then it tapers off again. And um, and then it doesn't come back And I would say time. for the first 45 minutes of the movie, even though I liked the aesthetic of it and everything, I was like... <sighs> Come mm. on, dude. When because I knew I've seen Blowout, so I know what the plot mm. is supposed to be. So I just kept going, like, "Come on, dude, figure it out." You're in the middle of a mystery. Even mm. I know that, and you don't. <laughs> you don't know it. You're just doing your job and taking photos of people all day. Come on, I've seen Blowout. I know you're in a mystery, man. <laughs> Come I on, man. No, you're in a mystery, man. Come on, man. Get you on Catch up with me because I'm ahead of you. I know. Get your little fucking jewel piece out. Look at the picture up close. Get the loop out. Have a squeeze through the loop. You'll see a funny image in the background. And it's of a fella dying, dropping dead and cocking it. Okay? (laughs) 
I, I think that's the interesting thing about this movie is coming into it, that was my feeling too. I'm like, mm. okay, I know this is going to be like the conversation. I know this is going to be like blowout where we someone captures the plotting of a murder uh-huh. or a murder itself yeah. on an image and then becomes an investigation of it. And then... I think I was really attracted to this first half because I've seen this a couple of times now since. And now that first act of just getting to understand who this person is, Mm. it feels like a very, very very interesting and good portrayal of someone that is a creative and has a talent and an ambition, but is not... uh, a born artist in a way mm. where they are kind of lazy when it comes to the job, but also like are doing interesting things. Like this movie begins with him having stayed overnight at a flop house where like, you know, very cheap accommodation for people that are laborers to sleep at night so they can go to their job or whatever they're trying to do. It feels like a very 1960s thing in England, mm. like a kind of like a layover from the 1950s. And and then he's doing it to like make like a book of a photo essays yeah. of like what this life is like. He's sort of um, holidaying in the role of a working class person. Absolutely. And I feel like this is a movie about someone that's... Rolls Royce. He, he leaves this flop house and he's wearing... Everyone else is wearing like these very almost like soot-covered clothes, Mm -hmm. these darkened clothes. Some of them are leaving not wearing shoes. And he is wearing the widest pants. Yeah. This gorgeous blazer, this blue shirt, these pressed, like, everything's pressed. He's got these (laughs) lovely brown loafers. Bongiorno, boys. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's got these Italian boots on. (laughs) And he leaves carrying a Swiss light made penis enlarger, a book about him enjoying them. And he hops into his car. And there's a seat for them as well. And there's a seat. He's got a little... (laughs) seat for the Swedish made penis enlarger. (laughs) And he's got a little male symbol on. <laughs> <laughs> and a crushed velvet suit ready yeah. to put away. But he's got... Um, he like hops into his Rolls Royce and it's like a complete contrast of like this guy's like a passenger living in the world mm. who is, you know, he's kind of drifting by. can tell like what... It, it's a really interesting way to introduce his character is. And then also this like big group of mimes come chasing around after him. And watching that, I'm like, this is Austin Powers here as well. Yeah, this is totally. Like, is it, this is going to be... It's also like Imagine monkeys. if someone's never listened to us before. They're I like, know. oh, I love Blow. I want to hear these guys talking They're about. just talking about Austin Powers. fucking Austin Powers a lot. Well, look, it's really hard for us not to <laughs> because we've seen those films so many times and they're a big part of our DNA. <laughs> but also, I'm looking for it because I know this is a reference mm. point that um, Mike and Jay Roach loved. Yeah. So, um, so I'm looking for the Austin everywhere in this movie. Yes. And it's actually not in it that much apart from the first 20, 30 minutes or whatever. And but the way he talks, he's English. He's he's way more working class sounding than Austin. Yeah. Austin's like, oh, hello, yeah. I'm Austin. And, and this guy's like, all right. I'm a fucking photographer in it. <laughs> I'm Ray Winston Powers. I'm a fucking Ray yeah. Winston Powers in it. Yeah, the the mimes are uh, the first thing you see in this movie mm. when the film starts. It's like a car, a jeep full of performance artists. They kind of remind me of the Merry Pranksters, who mm. were like the beatnik, late fifties, early sixties, like LSD group that Neil Cassidy was a part of, and they would like 
just take acid and fucking do these performance arty mm. things around town. They drove around in an old school bus and it's all very like of the time. Mm. If someone were to do that now, you'd be like, oh, these unbearable cunts. They suck. Fuck off. Those this is what flash mobs are, I guess. fucking <laughs> mimes. Yeah, that flash mob of mimes just won't <laughs> fuck off. But in the 60s, I guess it was like, Counterculture, yeah, cool, it's man. new, it's exciting. And people have to look and it's shaking up the establishment and all that shit. They're the first thing you see in this movie, and I think that means something. Mm. And they're also the last thing you see, really. Yeah. The second last thing you see. And I think that means something. I think that the only way I can interpret them is that the mimes, that group of mimes, they are the message of the movie, mm. and that is that this is all sound an action that means nothing. And I think yeah. that that is what Antonioni is saying about the 1960s and what he's saying about the flower power movement and the free sex movement and swinging and all that shit. Mm. I think he's saying that it is all style, no substance, vapid. and that it's vapid and that it all ultimately means nothing. I don't know if you want to talk about the ending of the movie yet, but seeing as we're talking about the mimes... Maybe we should come back to it. Let's come we'll back to the mimes. Put a little pin in and come back we'll to it. We'll do what the movie does. We'll open with mimes and we'll close and with And we'll mimes. close with those freaking mimes. I think that he's a fascinating character, this David Hemmings character in this mm. film. And he is inspired by a few people. Obviously, David Bailey, the photographer, is who he's based on. He's also based on... And uh, Terence Donovan and David Montgomery... Yes, Dave Montgomery actually is in this movie. He plays the assistant photographer Uh, in the photo shoot. And I watched this interview with him where he was talking about uh, going like, well, I'm not an actor. When I ran a film, I had to ask for more film. And like, what are you doing? Just pretend. He's like, I can't do that. I can't do that. So that's who he's based on, who is, uh, you know, it's like this, this guy took like, Famous photos of like Jimi Hendrix. If I showed you the photo, you'd be like, I've seen that photo my whole life. It's in mm. 10 books that I've seen. So there's all these people that took photos of what we think of the 1960s and mm. what they're about. So I guess that is true in that I think that's what Antonio is trying to say is that like it is, it's this vapid expressionistic take on like mm. what the 60s were and the people that kind of like presented it to people and how they presented it well even the way that uh the lead character in this movie directs his models it feels like it's very romantic to watch like a crazy artist mm. bark at bark at people and yeah. tell them that they're not good enough and yes. like demand that they all stand still and close their eyes it's like this romantic idea of what a crazy male artist does but it feels like he's even doing a performance in this movie absolutely because he you know there's that sequence where he's not happy with what the models are doing so he says i want you all to stand here and close your eyes and don't fucking open them and then he just leaves and goes and does some errands Mm. goes to his office and then he calls up and goes are they still are their eyes still closed okay good it's almost like he's just like yeah i'm doing what I'm expected to do, like yeah. to be a crazy artist. And it's that idea of like, you know, an artist having to be difficult as well. Mm. Whereas like, I think that he's only difficult because he is not an artist and he doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't know what his place is, what he's supposed to do because it's like, it does he even really care about this, these photo essays that he's putting together to a thing? Who's to say? Not really. He doesn't do any work on it in the whole movie. He doesn't so I don't know. at all. I don't think so. I guess he the whole purpose of this movie or the plot is that he 
is bored on his modeling gigs, right? So he goes for a drive and starts trying to snap photos of just normal people in mm-hmm. the in the world. And he goes to this park and he sees a young woman and an older guy kind of flirting and walking along together. He starts snapping photos of them inadvertently, you know, he snaps evidence of a murder. But he doesn't realize it for another 25 minutes after that. Mm. So, I mean, I just think this is a guy who's... It's very clear to me that the this is a guy who's absolutely bored shitless with living in the fucking swinging, mm. sexy fucking 60s. He has sex with... Uh, or he tries to have sex with a couple of models at one point yeah. and they're like... They're naked and they're flirting with him and it's all very like semi-erotic but also, but it also incredibly feels detached. Like detached and feels like kids playing. Like it doesn't yeah. feel... It doesn't actually feel erotic and that's like the threesome scene with Jane Burke, yeah, right? Yeah, Who's another like classic 60s symbol because mm-hmm. of this movie and becoming like the model of them, one of the the it girls of the 1960s. Yeah. And it doesn't feel erotic. It doesn't feel sexy to see like these attractive people playing. It feels like they're just mindlessly playing like kids. Yeah, it's it's kind of... And I don't know how much of that is true to what was happening in the 60s or if this is just an Italian guy, mm. very Catholic Italian, yep. coming to a freer place like the like london mm. the epicenter of hippie culture and mod culture and finding it all vapid and him giving us that version yeah and I making this take down because maybe if you lived in london in the 60s you'd be like it was the fucking best oh my mm. god free love the music was sick but then this guy from like a very very catholic repressed culture mm-hmm. comes over and is like, this just is bullshit. What are you guys doing? What are doing? these guys even doing? They don't have God. They don't have anything. Yeah. And is like, and he's like, criticizing it. Sucks, and probably. satirizing it. Yeah. Cause I mean, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he's criticizing the art and he thinks it yeah. sucks. Or maybe the artist, because I think he's going like, part of this guy is like, he is a photographer, but he's not making art. He's taking photos of fashion. Yeah, they're like corporate gigs. Corporate gigs, and he's forcing them to, you know, put everything into it while he's putting nothing into it. Mm. And then his photo essays, you don't even really get to look at them. No. And then what's he do? The big thing that he does, he takes a fucking photo at a park. Yeah. And the whole movie's about how he took a photo at the park, but it was not a precise photo. He wasn't. He was just like, oh, it's interesting. These two people are talking. It wasn't, and everything that he captures is by accident. Hmm. And that's what's interesting about it is like he accidentally took something that has a greater meaning to it. And I don't even think he cares about it. No. So if we can get into the mystery element of this, obviously we've, we've talked about it a little bit. He he accidentally captures footage of a murder taking place. He doesn't realize that's what happened until, you know, nearly half an hour later mm. when... <laughs> when he starts blowing up the negatives. And he sees like the little <laughs> glint of someone with a gun aiming it towards them from a bushes. Yeah, bush and so then at that point, he's he's kind of a little bit excited or drawn to the fact that he's stumbled into something bigger than him, mm. darker than his existence, and probably has some meaning. He goes to the park, the body's still there. Mm-hmm. Exciting, exciting. I can't yes. believe it. There's a body here. I've seen a murder. Yeah. And then the next thing he does is he goes to um, this party 
where he tries to tell his friend, you've got to come to the park with me. I found a body. I found mm. a corpse. And his friend says, who is it? And he says, it's somebody. And then his friend is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, well, maybe in a second or whatever. Yeah. And then his friend just fucks off back to the party and keeps partying. And then our our guy just parties too. Yeah. Doesn't go to the park again. Yeah. There's like this no urgency to this movie. Which is, I think that again is some tapping into what the movie is about, which mm. is about people who, you know, just don't take action. It's about mm. apathy. And I find that very interesting that the big movies of the 60s that are about the 60s, Easy Rider, mm-hmm. Shampoo, This, I, uh, you know, these are films that are about lack of action, apathy, ennui, people being bored, mm-hmm. people realizing that the good time is about to end. Yeah. And isn't that incredibly sad? This was 66. Yeah. You're in the middle of You're it. You're in the middle of it. And it's like already Antonioni is going, this is absolute bullshit and yeah. it's going to fall apart very soon. So mm. please fucking wake up and do something real with your life. Yeah. I think that it's... It's so it's so odd. It's such an odd movie. But I think going going through it, I keep on now I appreciate the filmmaking behind it and all the technique that goes into building this feeling. One of the key things that I got is probably the thing that I guess has made this movie iconic is that it has a Herbie Hancock score. Mm. And this is also when Herbie Hancock is like a I guess like one of the happening artists. He's in like twenty six years old, like mm. at this point in time as well. And he's still... I mean, I saw him in concert last year. Mm. And he has become like this icon of... I guess like... How would you call it? Like modern jazz? Yeah, like jazz funk. Jazz fusion. funk. Fusion. I only really know like like uh, Sly and Watermelon Man and yeah. stuff like that. And the big ones. He's... I mean, he's an incredible musician, incredible artist and very experimental. And I think that his score for this movie is kind of incredible because it's does this thing that we talk a lot about how the score is in juxtaposition to the movie Hmm. like yes it fits the tone and it fits the period because it's a very contemporary score and it's kind of like jostling and uh it's kind of it's like just a bristly a brisk score where it's like Hmm. it's fun and like you would play this record and if someone goes like oh that's cool what is it you go like oh it's from this fucking weird mystery existentialist movie but like are you serious you wouldn't believe it Yeah, yeah but it I think that Antonioni uses the score so superbly because there are such long swaths of this movie where the score does not exist, yeah. where it is completely silent, apart yeah. from like whatever the diegetic noises of the film are. There's not are. even really dialogue. Not even dialogue. There's like shuffling of shoes mm. or whatever, or like hearing someone from a distance. And I think that the way that this the score works almost like a distraction where the film should be about this plot. The film should be about this plot of him discovering this mystery. And the score should be like the winding up of like strings, the way that mm. that, that can that can make that that music can be used to build tension. Suspense music, like should Bernard be, Herrmann score or something. Exactly, like a Bernard Herrmann score, like mm. even the more modern Howard Shaw score mm. or something like that. And it should be a building up that. 
but instead the music u- is used to build up distraction where it's like when there's music this movie is exciting because you're like oh cool we're at the 60s we gotta <laughs> we've got where he's taking photos of all these bras he's like are you me a tiger yeah. me like a tiger no no, no. yes no. yes 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 no no like that <laughs> the awesome powerlessness of it all and you kind of like it builds up all that stuff so the distractions become really exciting mm. and then every now and then you get he is forced because it is the plot of this movie it is what is happening in his life and, and he, it's his happening it's his happening and guess what it's not his back it's not his back not his back tragically it's not this guy's back baby and he is like being trapped in this mystery movie and all the funness of the score disappears. There's no score. And he's trapped in there because he likes toying with this gorgeous Vanessa Redgrave. Who He only goes like, oh, she's gorgeous. I can play with her. But it's like, she's involved in some sinister shit. She got some uh, He doesn't kill. know, though. He doesn't know. And guess what? Because he's, he's the movie. We don't know either. But we do know because we've seen Blowout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we know. You know what? That's why it was difficult a little bit. Because I think... You know, if I had watched this and I didn't know, I hadn't seen the conversation or mm-hmm. blowout already, I would be incredibly excited by every development in this. But because <laughs> they were spaced out, every plot <laughs> moment was spaced out by half an hour, yeah. I was way ahead of the movie. What if, instead of you'd never seen the conversation on blowout, you hadn't seen them, so you're going like, God, when's this guy going to get fucking frozen? When's he going to get frozen and meet Dr. Evil? <laughs> I know it's going to happen because I've seen Austin. I guess it happens at the very end. <laughs> it does kind of happen yeah. at the very end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it happens at the very yeah, end. Very end. You know, it's a um, music-wise. It's not just Herbie Hancock. Mm. There, we have a scene in the movie that reminded me a lot of, and was I guess this was an inspiration on that sequence in Wings of Desire. As soon as I saw it, I was like, "This is Cameron. This is a scene. It's just <laughs> like why you love that movie." <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like once you see this, you go, oh, that's what Vim Vendors is um, mm-hmm. doing. You know, yes. like, and also what Vim Vendors is doing with his career. Like, yeah. he's recreating this era of um, over modern over expressionist existential filmmaking, but for the 80s. Mm. Um, and it's the same type of scene in this movie where our, our main character's chasing someone, he ends up going through a club. Mm. Through this mod club, which, by the way, got to be the worst crowd you've ever seen in your mm. life. They're watching the Yardbirds. They're watching the Yardbirds. Very exciting British invasion mm-hmm. pop rock band. And they're not even, there's not a hint of a mosh pit. No one's even nodding their head excited. Everyone's apathetic. They're smoking still, durries and yeah, stuff. Yeah, watching. And it's, it's very similar to that scene in uh, Wings of Desire where our angel walks into a club and sees Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds play and you kind of watch the whole song. Mm. That happens here. The Yardbirds yes. play almost a full song. Yeah. And you're just watching them and like Jimmy Page is there with his Telecaster and then the other guitarist, whose name I don't know because he wasn't in Led Zeppelin, <laughs> um, is like struggling with his guitar and the feedback he's getting from his amp and then he starts smashing his guitar on the ground mm. and stomping it with his feet and as soon as he does that, that's when the crowd gets excited. They yeah. start going crazy and they clamoring to grab bits of this broken guitar. Feels to me a little on the nose, mm. but that is what is this movie is saying is like, yeah, it's all very cool and exciting, but please, can we have some fucking chaos or something? Yes. Can something happen? Like, yeah. we're not 
really feeling anything until until there's genuine anger or emotion mm. in the air. Um, and I mean, the fact that that happens when the movie is kind of centered around writing and uh, not, not writing. Um, what's it called where people have signs? The opposite of writing. Protesting. Protesting. Yeah. Peaceful. Peaceful. Peaceful protesting. protesting. There's all that shit going on as well, but it feels like there's an undercurrent of, I want something violent and aggressive to happen. Mm. And I mean, you tie that in with the plot, with our guy discovering a murder. Finally, he's given purpose. Something violent and aggressive Mm -hmm. has happened. I mean, um, this is a this is the world on the cusp of a war, really. Yes. Like it's it is very easy to watch now from hindsight and go. They were clearly feeling very restless. Mm, yeah, and uh, whatever. It's cool, but it's also like I don't know, man. It didn't quite didn't quite land for me as a uh, what I thought it was going to be. I think it. Really, I thought it was going to be groovier. I think. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Is like. We watch movies like this is this is such an original movie. Mm. Like I think that this is why it has blown the door down for so much. Like this is such a big influence on American cinema, such a big influence on British and European cinema, and the way that we tell stories because it is all visual storytelling. And so at this time, we have got in the sixties in Europe, we've got the European new wave movement of cinema and art really happening right now and uh, across France and then across other parts of Europe as well now. So it's all really happening and it has yet to come to English language cinema mm-hmm. and it's yet to come to America. In America, it's going to be happening the next couple of years as well, yeah. leading up to Easy Rider. But stuff like The Graduate, stuff like... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, stuff like Bonnie and Clyde, where they're clearly being influenced by... Uh, by Mm. European new wave movements. When were they? 67? I think they're all between 67 and 69. Right. So So they're all like, and they're all kind of doing a version of this, which is about existential um, depression and ennui and shit like that. Yes. I don't know if I would definitely, I don't think I would really go, oh yes, Antonioni's an Italian new wave. Not necessarily. But he's not, he's not neorealist. He's moving He's he's kind of post near realist and he's more in the realm of modernism where it's like it is visual storytelling and I think that this being like the f- like like that tagline says Antonioni's first British film it's like this is kind of like that's actually a good tagline because it's like oh this is the first time in English language we've seen shit like this we've seen something be kind of like a bit aimless Mm. but also thrilling and kind of riveting Mm. and it's in a way using all of the techniques of cinema and techniques of filmmaking to just evoke feelings and to evoke tension in you in weird ways that is free of plot but full of story like this is like there's so much storytelling happening in this movie and so much like story like characterization and all that all the techniques of storytelling that is just completely free of plot and the Mm. plot just every now and then creeps in in a way that it kind of feels like a representation of life because like you know you'll have a day where it's like oh yeah something happened they stay but then also I did all this other shit where I like fucked around or whatever and mm. I think it's the first time we're seeing something like that happen in English language filmmaking and so I think for us like for us people like us that talk about movies the way that we do and talk about movies as like this lineage of storytelling 
it stands at this point, but there's like, it's more interesting for us because we're like, wow, we're going back to seeing what the original was for all of these things that mm. we care about. But is there an, it, it's not as interesting for us because of that. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a little bit like <laughs> it's a little bit like when you watch a Hitchcock film after mm. you've already watched a fucking De Palma film, De Palma film, and yeah. you go, oh yeah, 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 I see, I see. Yeah, but it was much slower back then. I yeah. like it when it's faster now. Yeah, I like it when it's got Al Pacino's fluffy hair in it. Yeah, or, or like listening to your parents' albums mm. when you've already listened to stuff that's been inspired by yeah. it nowadays. You know. Uh, so, and sometimes it's very cool and very rewarding. I think there are parts of this that were very rewarding to me, but then there was other parts that I just kept. Just I was very aware of the lineage, and mm. I kept saying, "Yeah, oh yeah, I, I've seen this before. Like yeah. I've seen versions of this before. Yeah, in other films and in other filmmakers, and it's very cool." To see the original, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I love the original. You know? I think that we should now only ever watch movies in a linear way where we watch... We, we have to go back to the start. we got to go back to the start and get our way to the present. We go back to train pulling into station and then we move forward. And then we get up to freaking Unstoppable, dude. Yes. we got to get it slowly all the yes, way Yes, and then Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. All the, all the tra- great train movies. So many great train pictures. The locomotive has been a godsend to cinema. Thank you, God. Thank you, Train. Can we talk a little bit about the ending now? I think we should talk about that ending. So, so guys, if you want to hop out of this... <laughs> if you want to fuck off for 45 seconds, fuck off, okay? <laughs> no, we're talking about an old movie, okay? It's not, and also, it's not the, It's not a it's wrapping up of a plot. It's also not even a spoiler, yeah. It's not, we're not wrapping up a plot. This is all about character. And the point of this movie is that the plot never gets resolved. And it absolutely tapers off. Yeah. As far as we're concerned, the next day in this character's life could go back to this plot, but mm. who knows? So, as you're aware, he uncovers this murder plot. It's a, an older man who seems to have been assassinated in the park. We don't know who he is. He could we be a know, senator. He could be... We don't know anything, but it's mm-hmm. interesting you say senator because that's all I can think of when I watch it is JFK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the point. I yes. think we're supposed to go, this is three years after or four years after mm-hmm. JFK was assassinated in a public place mm-hmm. as well. I think we're supposed to assume that this is a man of power. He's an yeah. older guy wearing a suit. Some sort of political assassination. He has to be... So, it's This feels like we're being led to believe this is a political assassination, mm-hmm. but we don't get told that. Um and he seems like he's on the verge of like, I'm going to try and uncover this mystery. I want to be the one to solve it. Mm. But he doesn't. Instead, he just goes to the park. The body's gone. He sort of seems depressed. And then the fucking mimes show up again. These fucking mimes have been partying nonstop mm. for 24 hours on their little Jeep. Yeah. Riding around. And he kind of watches them a little bit. And then they start playing a game of mime tennis on a tennis court where they're pretending to have rackets and hitting a ball around. Mm-hmm. And he watches them. And I can understand. It is kind of riveting. It's kind of cool to the... watch these fucking mimes just play. But you know what it is? It's like he's... he. I think this is symbolic of him giving up and going back to being a passive observer mm-hmm. into the life of someone who doesn't do anything anymore it's all style no substance yeah. because obviously you see the two guys uh the two mimes 
pretending to hit a tennis ball back and forth. Cool. But the camera also gives a lot of time to the rest of the mimes who are on the sidelines with their heads going back and forth as if they're watching a ball go back and forth. And it's convincing every time because there's moments where like, oh, he put a little bit of power in there and then you follow their eyes, go to where it should go. Yeah. You get moments where like, okay, it hits the net or if it, it and does... And they all react as if it's hit the net or yeah. if, it's, if you know, they react as if it's gone near them or if it's gone over the fence mm-hmm. and they're going to get the ball and throw it back to them. Yeah. And I think that's that's what the movie is about. It's mm. about being a passive observer yeah. in, uh, in something that you think is a real activity but is in fact empty and yes. hollow and nothing. Mm. <laughs> We're all mime observers in Antonioni's eyes. Yes, I think We're, so. We're all watching a fake game of tennis and pretending that it's exciting and riveting when really there's nothing happening. And then he becomes a participant in it when the ball, uh, quotations, when nothing flies over the fence, they all stare at him to pick it up. And he very realistically bends down, picks up, brushes it off, mm. this non-existent ball, and throws it over. And it is like he becomes a participant in this as well, mm. which is like what the whole movie's all about. Mm. It's about this emptiness, about this nothing, and this kind of vapidness of life. And every now and then something happens, mm. but he's not an active participant. You know what I find interesting about that? sequence where he kind of gives over to his imagination mm. like that's a moment that would be powerful in a indie movie from the 90s yeah. it's also like not too dissimilar from you're doing it peter absolutely in fucking hook which is an, a freaking indie anna jones directed movie <laughs> and that the when the that 90s. happens in hook mm. or whatever it's it's always like look this person has finally let go of their stuffy yeah. ways and they're giving over to imagination they're pretending to play they're playing a game mm. and they're give, becoming more childlike yes and it's powerful it's always very a beautiful moment when that happens in a movie but in this movie it's depressing because it's like he's just gone back to playing gone yeah. back to pretending ignoring real life his whole life has been pretending as far yeah. as we're aware of this movie it, he, he begins at pretending to be someone living in a flop house mm. to take photos of them and show their life in a way that just so he and his classmates can be like oh isn't that wonderful what you've mm. done there to celebrate him not them and then the rest is him pretending to be a photographer then pretending to be an investigator mm. it's it's pretty great you know what? I think I really like talking about this movie mm. more than I enjoyed watching it. I think I've come around because I think the first time I watched it, I did I did find that struggle. But mm. I think I've put it on a few times since then, trying to like, you know, obviously prepare for this podcast, but also just trying to unlock it and to be like, what is it that inspired all the art that I love? Mm. And like the like three pieces of art... Three pieces of art that couldn't be more important to me than Blowout, The Conversation, and Austin Powers. We talked about Austin Powers a lot in the past, including this episode. <laughs> We're going to talk about Blowout next week. But uh, before we wrap things up, maybe we should talk a little bit about Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Sure, sure. I rewatched this as well immediately after Blow Up. Hmm. And 
it is like the exact link between blowout and blow up because it already removes it from vision to sound. It's about someone, it's about Gene Hackman as Harry Call, who is like this surveillance person mm. who is deliberately trying to go out and capture something. Um, this to capture our conversation and is this conversation that the whole film is about where it's this couple, a man and a woman talking in a park. And by the way, there is a freaking mime next to them. Yeah. And straight away, the first thing you see in that movie is a mime. I'm like, okay, I know what this is now. And he's trying to capture a conversation for them for the purposes of surveillance, for the purposes of espionage. And it's more directly tied into like the idea of like the Zapruder film of capturing, mm. of capturing something horrific happening or capturing the evidence towards something. Yeah. And it's also like this about this sense of loneliness and I think that uh, the uh, and it's also all about that score as well. And watching the film again, it was like all about David Shire's score, which is like this very lonely sound of just a piano. And Coppola and David Shire in Coppola's films, his scores are always very important, and they can be big, they can be full of music, they can be full of sound, like a wave of sound. And David Shire is very capable of creating like big scores and we've uh, heard it before we've heard it before and this time it's just a quiet lonely piano playing by itself and i'm like this is like absolutely what the feeling of harry call is in this movie of gene hackman's character of this tall weird lonely guy that wears a dressed as dresses up in a full suit and raincoat every day, just surveilling other people's lives and not having one of his own. And the only time that score is built up with more stuff is when he himself hops on his saxophone mm. and plays along to the score. And I was like, this is a man who can, who the only frequency that he can hum in common with something else is this score that doesn't even exist in his realm. Mm. That's how like sad and lonely he is. And I hadn't seen the conversation for so long and watching it again, I was like, this truly is like one of my favorite movies of all time. (laughs) And it's weird to just be like, oh, and it is so blow up. It is so Mm. what blow up is about, but it's just, I guess, a more a more deliberate take on what it's all about, where it's like putting the pieces together not for you exactly, but putting the pieces together in a way where it is a more cohesive experience. And I guess like, you know, not less artistic in any way. Like it, Coppola is like a fucking great film artist, but it's just like, it's making something very different out of like similar tools. Um, it also stars one of your favorite performers of all time, John mm-hmm. Cazale. Yes, it does. It's got a great John Cazale performance as Stanley, I believe. I believe. I, I wonder if I could name every John Cazale character. Let's test you right now. Okay. Fred hang on, hang on. Okay. Let, me, let me pull up his uh, I'll pull up his IMDb. And I want you to name every character. Okay. He's only he been in five movies. And I know the movies. Godfather, Godfather Part 2, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and Deer Hunter. Okay. Those are the movies that he's appeared in. All right, let's name all the characters. Go Fredo on. Corleone mm-hmm. in The Godfather. Fredo Corleone in The Godfather Part 2. Yes. The conversation he plays Stanley. Uh-huh. In, in Dog Day Afternoon, 
Does he also play a character called Stanley? Nope. Damn it. Um, can I get the first letter? S. Oh my god, Sal. Thank he you. He plays Sal. And in the Deer Hunter. God, I haven't seen Deer Hunter in a long ass time. I'll give you a clue. You've already said the name. Sam? Stan? Yeah. Yeah, he plays so Stan. That's five why I knew movies, it. Yeah. three character names. <laughs> three character names. Fredo, Fredo, Stan, Stan, and Sal. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's the way I want to be. Man, exactly. Just five play movies, Cam, three character names. Cam and Jam, the two characters. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I should rewatch that again, actually. I've been... It's one of those films that I saw a long time ago when I was really going through a Coppola thing. Mm. have never revisited, but, mm. but always liked it. But it just looms... I mean, it's in the shadow of... Of, uh, he giants. made it between the two <laughs> yeah. like most important American movies of his era. Yeah. And, you know, it's fucking great. It's so good. I think you've given me reason to watch it again. And especially because I watched Blow Up the other night, I, mm-hmm. I reckon I could get away with yeah. putting the conversation on at home and uh, there'd be context for it. Yeah. And it's got a great cast. I mean, young Harrison Ford, mm. Robert Duvall, mm. Terry Gar. Mm. Oh, my God. Terry Gar is so cool. Yes. Awesome. Man, I got to do it. And then, obviously, we're going to be watching Blowout next week. Yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about Blowout, Brian De Palma's classic with Jonathan Travolta playing the guy who captures a murder. Awesome. On tape, baby. I can't wait to rewatch that. It probably is, honestly, top five favorite movies of all time for me. I'm it's really excited so to talk about good. it. It's such a cool movie. It is worth tracking down if you're listening to this and you've never seen it. It might be hard to do so currently, but I would say track it down Find because a it way. freaking rules. Mm. It always pops up on like SBS On Demand or Stan yeah. or iTunes or whatever. Annoyingly, it was on Stan for ages. Yes. And, and now, it's, now not. it's not. And then apparently it was on SBS On Demand for ages and it was now it's not yeah. either. And it was it screened on SBS the other night at midnight. Mm. Oh, so it might pop up on SBS it on might, demand. It might. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah, worth worth tracking down. Mm-hmm. If you can't find it on a streaming platform, ask a friend if they have a copy of it. Or that's what I have. Go We're going to watch my copy of it. Yeah, you'll find it. It's worth as well. Like if you're a Criterion or physical media collector, Criterion of it is superb, and the Arrow video release in the UK is superb as well. Both of them are great. I've almost would own mm. both of them I just thought, because I like buying I honestly movie. thought for a second you were just telling people to watch the show The Arrow. You've got to watch the version of The Arrow where they capture a murder on tape. It's what I'm saying. It's part of this lineage that we care so much about. The DC TV franchise. My God, I'm going to feel myself watching it and crying. <laughs> I care so much about it. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to us on Total Reboot. Next week, like we said, we're going to be talking about Blowout. In the meantime, if you want to hear more from us, you can head over to patreon.com slash Total Reboot and sign up for just five bucks a month to get access to bonus content mm. for Travolta Reboot. We are currently just released two episodes from the Blank Slate Movie Podcast Archives about Saturday Night Fever and Staying Alive. Two of my favorite episodes of that podcast, we talk about one of my favorite movies of all time and the insane sequel that exists to it. (laughs) And also, we're going to be looking at some other Travolta movies that don't fall in reboot. We're going to do some full episodes on times where we thought he might have been trying to relaunch his career because he is the comeback kid. He's the comeback king. He always... 
is on the out or very on the up and becomes one of the major movie stars in the world once again. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some of the ones that we think that he was trying to launch something off during the off peaks. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't There's wait. There's a couple of those that I'm just like dying to see. Exactly. And especially comparing and contrasting him to Nicolas Cage as we had just done that mega series. It's so interesting how like they have all these similarities between them. Mm. Like, they've both worked with the guy that did Swordfish. The guy, that he did Gone in 60 Seconds as well. That's right. They have similar hairlines as well. Yes, they do. But also, they both they have don't. wrong hairlines. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, Cameron, do you have anything else you want to point the babies towards? Um, I'd like to take a moment to plug DVDs as mm-hmm. a format. I think they get overlooked. By Blu-rays and 4K now. People are obsessed with 4K. People love Blu-ray. Um, I stick to the original DVDs. I think they're amazing. You mm. get a menu on there. Yeah, yeah. It's pick awesome. whatever you want from that menu. Film. Special features. Art gallery. <laughs> Sometimes you get an electronic press kit on there. I love the bios. Bio, character bios, stills, you, you name it. Every now and then you get an Easter egg on there. Oh, a tasty, tasty treat for a fellow like me. I am diving into DVD culture myself even more so than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Blake Howard from One Heat Minute and All the President's Minutes have got a new podcast racket going. And yes, baby, it is a racket. <laughs> we uh, got a podcast called Imprint Companion where we go through this new Australian boutique Blu-ray label. Uh, they release batches quarterly in a batch of five where we go through all the Blu-ray releases of that week of that batch and talk about them in depth. So this is celebrating DVD culture as on the nose as I've never done before. <laughs> but it's really fun because it's cool to like follow a new label because it's all about discovering cinema. And it's introduced me to some really cool films. The best one being on the latest episode we talked about, Night Falls on Manhattan, which was a Sydney Lumet film that I had never seen before, starring Andy Garcia, James Gandolfini, and Ian Holm as Andy mm. Garcia's dad. Casting yeah. that you cannot believe, but Sydney Lumet convinces you. <laughs> it really works in a weird way. I'd never seen that movie before, and I loved it. So if you want to hear me talk about that with Blake, we both gush all over it. And it is a pleasure Sticky. to gush with Blake, who is such a great critic. So check out that. I'll put the show the, in the show notes to this episode. You can click on through and listen to it straight away. And, you know, maybe you want to watch those movies too. And also, if you watch Tenet and you want to hear me review it, I'm on the screen show, the ABC Radio National show, talking about it. And I'll tell you, it was a mixed review. <laughs> and also on the mix this weekend, talking about Tenet as well. I didn't review it anywhere. Um, uh, but what if are your li- thoughts? If you'd like to talk to me about Tenet, I don't know, slip me a little DM or something. You can find Cameron over on Twitter and Instagram at I am Cameron James. And I will say I have deleted both those apps from my phone mm-hmm. during the making of the project that we're working on right yes. now. But I will get to all DMs regarding Tenet eventually. If you want him quickly, wait until around 6pm when Cameron's probably at home at his computer so <laughs> you can get to him around then. Uh, you can get me on at This Is Lexi at those platforms too. And I too have deleted those platforms from my phone. <laughs> so every now and then I will go on to them, but I will answer every message. Yes. Yeah, so if you send us a message regarding Tenet, mm-hmm. wait, be patient. We will be get patient. back to you. We're just working on something at the moment. And heck, my message may be 
hey, Schmohol, go check out these and send you a link to me talking about them in the media. Mine might be like, hey, Tenet, you know what? It was okay. Mm. <laughs> I love when the bungee up the building. I love up bungee. Absolutely love up bungee. Love the up bungee. Love that big floppy suit that Robert Pattinson wears. I love the floppiness of him in this movie. <laughs> Simply adore how floppy he is. The hair, the, the suit, scarf. the scarf. My gosh, the guys are on the floppiest actors of all time. Yeah, he's up there with John Cazale. Quite <laughs> floppy, quite a floppy fella. <laughs> 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 well, this has been a pleasure and very shagadelic. Thank you for joining us in the sixties, and mm-hmm. next time we'll see you in the eighties. In the from the swinging sixties to the erotic eighties. <laughs> We're going to be talking about blow out. And guess what? We're going to blow out your... We're going to blow you out. We're going to blow you all the way out. (laughs) 